everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. The name of the game with endo symptoms of managing it is getting inflammation under control. And that's not going to happen sustainably until the gut is in good shape. Right. So doing all of the work to balance the microbiome and then doing the work to heal the damage done from all the inflammation and the, um, you know, the dysbiosis um, should really help with chronic inflammation. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're talking all about an integrative approach to endometriosis. We know that endometriosis affects roughly 176 million people worldwide. So this topic is very deserving of our attention, and we're so fortunate to spend some time today with our guest. Endometriosis is near and dear to her heart. Let me tell you about Dr. Merritt Jones. Dr. Merritt Jones is a doctor of acupuncture and integrative medicine and the founder of Natural Harmony Reproductive Health. This is an integrative fertility and reproductive health clinic based out of the San Diego area. As a provider who has faced some of the worst sides of reproductive health, including dealing with endometriosis and infertility, she knows firsthand how profoundly helpful integrative medicine can be. She's really dedicated her career and her clinic to bettering the lives of those facing reproductive health challenges. I'm just so excited to chat with her today. Welcome, Merit. I can't wait to chat with you. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I was so thrilled when you reached out. I just think you're, all of your content is amazing and you're making a huge difference in the world. So thank you. Uh, well, the feeling is certainly mutual and endometriosis is such an important topic for you. And we've kind of talked about this offline. This is a really important component of your own story. And I I imagine that's why you feel so compelled to do the education that you do and why you feel so strongly about really getting the word out, all we can do with integrative medicine to treat endometriosis. Normally I just dive into like clinical pearls, but I really want to highlight your story. I think it's really powerful and really worth sharing. So I thought we could kick off today's episode by learning a little bit more about why endometriosis is so important to you and hearing what brought you to this aspect of, of medicine? Yes, absolutely. I think like so many providers, I came to this medicine with my own story and certainly, um, with endo, I came by it very naturally. Um, so I just recently shared a bigger part of my story online, um, and I'll share a synopsis of it here with you now. So, um, I have endo on both sides of my family, my mom, my grandmother, aunts, uncle, not uncles, aunts, <laughs> um, have endo. And um, by the time that I started my period, it became very clear that something was going on. We didn't know the family endo history at the time. We just knew that there were bad periods in the family. Um, so that family history, plus the autoimmune issues on both sides, plus being a child of the 80s and 90s, um, when antibiotics, I think, were you know heavily overprescribed, plus um, living on you know the fat-free processed you know snack wells and whatever else, um, it set me up for a pretty messy uh, transition into womanhood and menstruation in general. Um, so at the age of, you know, 12, when I started my period, I had almost 15 years of 
awful periods um, that I just didn't understand what was happening. And it took literally 15 years to get a diagnosis. It was 15 years of going to doctor's offices, essentially being medically, you know, gas lit um, about what was going on with me. And by the time that I did finally get a diagnosis, I went in, I had, you know, I looked five months pregnant and I said, please listen to me. Something is not right. Um, they did an ultrasound, found a 12 centimeter endometrioma, rushed me into surgery. And I came out on the other side being told that I had end stage, stage four endometriosis. It was a disaster in there and that it was going to, you know, essentially render me infertile and affect the rest of my life. Um, and so that launched my journey into what has turned into actually a, you know, a beautiful journey, but it was definitely bumpy along the way. Um, since then I've had, it's been 12 years since that first surgery, I've had five surgeries total. And just recently I shared that, you know, in last June, I ended up having a hysterectomy. Um, and that was after many years of learning many years of finally finding the sweet spot and, and integrating all the tools that I've learned. Um, and I, I was able to sustain a place of comfort for many years, but when the pandemic hit, um, my stress levels just went through the roof and it set off my endo like I was a teenager again. And I was exhausted by this point. We had two children, I had a busy clinic. I was just tired. And I, you know, I said to my, excuse me, to my excision surgeon, I'm done. I, I want it out. Um, and so since then, it's been actually really wonderful. <laughs> and that's been a whole other journey. Um, and I hope, you know, in sharing this story, I, I hope that it doesn't scare people who think they have endo, the odds that, um, their endo is as severe as mine is pretty unlikely. Um, but what I hope is that it is empowering folks, um, to seek early intervention and to be our own advocate, because there is so much that can be done in the early stages to really slow the, you know, just the damage that we know endo can do. Um, so that's my story. That's, that's the synopsis of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because not only, as you said, can we instill some hope in those who are listening to, to give them skills to be proactive about this, but if there's other healthcare providers like myself who are listening and work in a primary care setting where we're seeing patients all the time who come in and they have terrible menstrual cramps, this is such a great reminder to all of us to stay curious and ask more questions. So I really appreciate just you building this awareness by sharing your own story. And it's, it's not always glamorous. I mean, what you just highlighted is you struggled for years and ultimately that resulted in a procedure and your doctor telling you that perhaps your fertility is going to be impacted. So we ha really have to be mindful of just the mental, emotional, spiritual implications of being on this long, painful journey and then receiving some potentially devastating news in the middle of it. So we're going to dive into all of that, but but just thank you. I, I imagine it can be somewhat vulnerable to share this side of your story, and I just really appreciate you doing it here. Thank you. Yeah, it really was as a provider, and I honestly was surprised at um, the many people who reached out, both, you know, just uh, people living with endo providers who reached out and, and shared, you know, they were dealing with similar stuff that was um, nice to hear, not nice to hear, touching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you and I share a great love 
of looking at all of the different body systems and how they work together to make our reproductive health really strong and functional. And there are so many areas of endo, so many body systems that we could could dive into. And of course, selfishly, I thought, let's start with inflammation today because that's my favorite system or process to talk about. And I know that there's so much overlap between endometriosis and its progression and inflammation. So will you just talk to us a little bit to get to help us wrap our minds around how endometriosis and inflammation are related. Yes. I mean, there's no way to, they are, where to start? <laughs> Endo yeah. and inflammation. Inseparable. Are, yeah, exactly. They're inseparable. Um, so there, of course, is a lot that we don't know about endo yet, um, but one of the things that has become very clear in the research is that it is a disease of immune dysfunction and uh, inflammation. And although there are a lot of questions about why, where does it come from? Why does, you know, how does it develop in the first place? There are a lot of theories out there um, pointing to different ideas. And personally, I think that there's probably truth in most of the theories about the etiology of endo. I think that there's many different types of endo and probably similar to cancer, there's many different ways that it can evolve. Um, but underneath all of them, the truth is that they're rooted in immune dysfunction and inflammation. Um, and so we know that this for folks who have endo and are dealing with um, chronic in inflammation, they just essentially are stuck in this inflammatory cycle. Um, where endo lesions um, in and of themselves trigger the immune system. You know, the, the immune system identifies that there is something going on in the body that doesn't belong there. Um, and essentially it triggers the immune system to try and get rid of it the same way that it would try to heal a cut or deal with a virus or, you know, take care of you and try to keep you alive. Um, but the catch with endo is that the immune system, we just, it can't do it. It's failing to clear it. Um, so it's essentially sounding the alarm saying there's a fire here, um, but it just isn't able to put it out. Um, and so what should have been an acute inflammatory process, um, as we see with you know, cuts and viruses, um, turns into this chronic inflammatory process. And that really sets folks up for kind of a nasty cycle of having to then deal with this cascade of other inflammatory issues. Um, and it's very easy to get stuck in it. So I would love to talk a little more about that at some point too, just how gut health and nutrition deficiencies and the toxic burden that we see really kind of adds um, fuel to the fire, if you will. Oh yeah, we're going there. Don't <laughs> worry. We definitely should talk about all of that. But I think it's so important that we continue to bring awareness that there's this inflammatory component because I th I think we're ha we have a more well-rounded picture of all of the, the various drivers of endometriosis now. But historically, for a long time, I, I saw other providers really file this one under hormonal, like, oh, this is a hormonal condition. And the risk in my, my perspective is when we, when we kind of file something under a, a hormonal condition, then we're tempted to only offer hormonal solutions. And we know that's not, that's not the full picture here. There's so much we can do. So when you were going through your own endometriosis journey, at what point did that, did someone tell you about this inflammation connection? Did you just do your own info, your information gathering? Like when did that come into your awareness? Um, I mean, I had to seek out a doctor to really, <laughs> a doctor and integrated medicine to really understand yep. it. Um, no, of course, 
you know, I think still most providers, most, especially, you know, traditional OB-GYNs would still categorize endo as that disease that is sensitive to estrogen, right? It's not, it's still not very well understood. When I was going through my own journey, I was essentially only offered hormonal contraceptives and it was identified by most of my providers as an estrogen problem. And it's true, we know that endo is sensitive to estrogen, but it is an immune disease that is sensitive to estrogen, not the other way around. One question that comes up when I'm working with patients who have endometriosis, and we're very good at doing our own research for better or for worse. We've had to do that. We've had to become our own advocates. And one question I get is about adhesions mm -hmm. and worrying about adhesions, even if they're not ready for surgery. But will you talk to us a little bit about you know, how does chronic inflammation contribute to adhesions? And is there something we can do to be proactive? I'm um, looking at acupuncture. Is there a way that you're using acupuncture to, to help prevent some of those adhesions? Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, adhesions are essentially, you know, little bands of scar tissue resulting from significant or chronic inflammation or injury. Um, and in the case of endo, as we've kind of discussed already, we just have this chronic injury occurring in the body over and over again. Um, and the immune system over time will create adhesions as a tool to try and address some of that chronic inflammation and to heal. But what happens is that it ends up creating um, a lot of scar tissue. And for some folks that can be um, one of the biggest issues. I know for myself personally, um, once I got the endo to a manageable place, adhesions became the biggest challenge. Um, and there was one surgery that I was in where they came out and said, you know, your endo is really not present at this point, but the adhesions are, are really bad. And so, and then we got to get to, we got to work on just addressing scar tissue. Um, some of the tools that we can use to do that, definitely acupuncture, um, both before surgery, just to help promote lots of good blood flow to the abdomen. And after, if somebody does decide to have surgery afterwards, because we know that um, although excision surgery can be profoundly helpful for endo, it can also create more adhesions. It's one of those um, risks that we end up taking if we decide to have surgery. And so acupuncture, um, pelvic floor physical therapy, even just castor oil packs after the wounds have healed, um, can all be really helpful for dealing with the adhesions. Um, I think some of the, some of the ways that I see these adhesions impact folks, um, beyond just, um, fertility, right. It can definitely impact how the ovary, how the ovaries function and how we're ovulating. It can impact bowel health, we can impact gut health because over time it can slow, you know, transit time and create um, dysbiosis and all this, this fun stuff that we'll get to talk about. Um, it can create um, a condition called frozen pelvis, which is something that I personally deal with. And I saw it, see it and saw it for a long time in clinic. Um, just leading up to where I am now. Um, and it's, yeah, adhesions are a bummer, <laughs> but there's a lot that we can do proactively to help mitigate that. Well, I think what you're describing with adhesions being present in so many various geographical locations is part of the reason why endometriosis goes 
undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for so long, right? Because I've had so many patients who they, they have endometriosis, but it's been misdiagnosed as a, a gut condition because of the gut symptoms that are related to their adhesions. And so all, all of these factors that you're mentioning, if you're not if you're not looking and you're not asking the questions, it's easy for endometriosis to look like something else. Of course. And we hear this all the time, right? That folks are misdiagnosed with IBS or, you know, some other gut issue um, for years before they finally get their official endo diagnosis. And certainly um, lesions on the bowel and adhesions on the bowel can definitely contribute to symptoms that would mimic IBS. Um, so yeah, definitely. As we're looking for listeners who maybe they're working with a practitioner right now and they, they don't feel like they are getting to the root of their symptoms and maybe there's more questions to be asked. Do you have any advice about, I don't, sometimes I call it practitioner shopping for la lack of a better term, but I mean, we have to find the practitioner that is going to meet us where we're at and is going to really serve our goals. And do you have any oftentimes my patients with endo, they have seen two, three, a handful of docs before they find someone who's a good fit. And I, I would love just to hear your perspective, how you advise your patients, what you've personally been through just to find that right practitioner. Absolutely. Honestly, I think it's not one right practitioner. I think with endo, it requires a village. Um, and that's one of the things that I really loved starting to assemble in my own clinic is this village that we can refer people to. So of course you want to try and find somebody who's endocompetent. Um, just ask them a list of questions. You can find them anywhere, but you know, the basic ones are, do they understand excision surgery? Are they going to push hormones on you? Not hormone you know, birth control might be helpful, but it's certainly not the only tool. Um, get just, and also just, you need to feel comfortable with them. Right. Um, and then are they open to the types of care that you're interested in? Because there are a lot of different ways to approach endometriosis, um, and finding the right village for you, I think is important. So hopefully you'll feel comfortable and confident. Um, and also make sure you do your homework, especially if you're choosing a surgeon, you want to make sure that they're really, um, truly endocompetent and understand excision surgery, which unfortunately is hard to find in a lot of the United States. Um, so access is definitely an issue for some people. Yeah. I think that's a very good point that this is often a collaborative care team. It's not a single provider solving all of the problems. And so establishing that super care team to, to help you meet all of those goals. I just really want to reemphasize that part because I think and, and I'm certainly guilty of this too, of like looking for that one person who I think is going to connect all the dots. And maybe you have that central person who helps you to establish that care team and bring everyone together, but really it's probably multiple people. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, on the topic of inflammation, you mentioned gut health as one contributor to our inflammatory burden. And I think that the gut reproductive access is so, so, so important. And that certainly applies here. So from a, a body systems standpoint, when you're looking at the gut health of your patients, what are some of the most common conditions, the, the terrain of our gut health that really can lead or predispose to endometriosis? You already mentioned dysbiosis. So you gave us a little sneak preview, yeah. <laughs> but let's just spend some time with this topic. 
Oh my gosh, this is probably my favorite topic and where I spend a lot of time in my clinic. I think my, my staff, the other doctors on my team probably are tired of me um, <laughs> talking about gut health, but for, for all aspects of um, reproductive health and fertility, it really can impact, and especially for endometriosis. Um, I think one of the most common symptoms that we hear about um, with endo is, you know, the dreaded endo belly, this extreme bloating and discomfort um, that comes with endo. And of course, gut health is not only important to address the discomfort of endo belly, it certainly can and does um, impact the entire immune system and the whole, you know, cascade of, of how the immune system functions and how we um, see inflammation take place, gut health at the center of it. Um, and it's usually manifested as endo belly and awful pain is how we see it in endo. Um, so to answer your question, the most common, um, in some, the most common gut issues that I see in my clinic with endometriosis, um, first one would definitely be dysbiosis. So just pathogenic bacteria, either in the small or large intestine, um, also sometimes in the vaginal microbiome, if, you know, I know that's not part of the gut, but it is, I think, significant just to talk about um, microbiome health. Um, but with dysbiosis in the gut, we're seeing this gram-negative bacteria produce these really toxic um, molecules that are literally, it's kind of like Molotov cocktails in the gut, right? These, these um, byproducts of these problematic uh, bacteria are just wreaking havoc and creating a lot of inflammation in the gut. Um, some of the most common overgrowth that I see, SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which I think has made a pretty big name for itself actually in the endo scene. I'm hearing more of it, which I'm really grateful for, um, just to hear this awareness around it. Um, and then dysbiosis in the large intestine as well. So I am a big fan of testing. Um, and one of the tests that we do for almost all of our endo patients is a stool analysis, just to get a really clear picture of what's going on, what's overgrown in the gut, what's undergrown, how are they digesting different things. Um, and a common pattern that I see is an overgrowth of E. coli and overgrowth of Klebsiella. Sometimes we'll see um, H. pylori, you know, in the stomach and all of these things are contributing to chronic inflammation, uh, pouring gasoline on the inflammatory fire, um, and also affecting how the gut functions, which I think leads to this other, this next um, topic, um, intestinal permeability, right? And leaky gut syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Those are all I'll just point out everything, all, all of these patterns are things we see in patients who are struggling with um, implantation issues as well, just because of the way that it affects the, the tissue of the uterus. So this is all making a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Before we move on, will you just describe really quickly what you mean about endo belly, because for those who maybe are listening and they don't have any experience with endo, they might not be familiar with what that looks like. And you mentioned that you experienced that personally when you first presented and were just begging for someone to listen to you. Just take two seconds and tell everyone what that looks like, what it feels like. Of course. Um, I mean, I think it can manifest a little bit differently for everybody, but how I see it most often presented is just literally distension to the point where you might look pregnant. You might feel like your clothes don't fit. I find often um, tight waistbands can, can trigger this discomfort with folks who are 
um, tending towards having a nobelli or tending towards having some kind of dysbiosis that might be contributing to endobelly. Um, usually this intense bloating often will see it worse after um, a meal. That's a clue that there might be something going on with the, with the microbiome. Um, but yeah, the, the bloating and the pain, I mean, it's just, it comes on randomly or seemingly randomly. A lot of times if we dig a little bit, we can kind of figure out, you know, what's triggering it. Um, and it just feels awful. And it, I mean, it's really miserable. You just want to pop your tummy. <laughs> the distension. And do you see endo belly changing cyclically, or it seems to just be random. There's a variety of triggers. Maybe it's food related. Does it just happen at any time? Again, I think it's different for different people. I definitely see a trend around ovulation. I think a lot of people have um, pain with ovulation that can trigger some endobelly. And then in the luteal phase, when things tend to get a little bit messy anyways, I think we're more prone to endobelly. Add water retention on top of it, right? And then we are just <laughs> dealing with a mess. Um, yeah progesterone and more water retention, slower motility. Uh, you mentioned that there's a connection between adhesions and gut motility. Did I get that correct? Yes. This seems like a good time to make that, to connect all of these pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's very common with endo. Honestly, I have probably never met or very rarely meet an endo patient who doesn't have some gut issues, usually um, manifesting often as dysbiosis. Um, and one of the issues I believe, and one of the reasons we see this with endo is because the chronic state of inflammation in the pelvis, in the abdomen, makes us more prone to developing adhesions, which over time can slow transit time in the bowel, both for food and for stool. Um, and this creates, unfortunately, a kind of ideal situation for problematic bacteria to get comfy and make a home. Um, and so it, it's one of those with endo, it can be really difficult to treat um, because once you eradicate it, you then have to figure out how to keep the bowels moving, right? Motility is a really big piece with addressing SIBO. Um, and the adhesions can sometimes make that difficult. And just the inflammation in the bowel, I think it's not always just adhesions, but inflammation in general, you know, messes with bowel function. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's say you do some SIBO breath testing or you do your comprehensive stool analysis and you have a plan, your treatment plan might include nutrition and botanicals and acupuncture and physical medicine. Does treating some of those gut issues, does it help resolve or at least improve endo symptoms? It should. If we're doing it right, it should help. Um, it's, you know, it's not a cure, but for most people, the name of the game with endo symptoms of managing it is getting inflammation under control. And that's not going to happen sustainably until the gut is in good shape. Right. So doing all of the work to balance the microbiome and then doing the work to heal the damage done from all the inflammation and the, um, you know, the dysbiosis um, should really help with chronic inflammation. And that should help with the endo symptoms. Um, and what I typically ask of my patients is, you know, we'll do the work and I want to see at least 10 percent improvement every cycle. Um, 
And if we're making that progress, then I feel confident that we're moving in the right direction. Um, if not, then we might need to go back to the drawing board and see what else might be fueling that, you know, stoking that fire. Mm -hmm. Well, I think related to all of this, to the inflammation, to the adhesions is a topic that comes up in my patient population. And I will admit right now, I really struggle with, and that's the pain management. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the chronic pain associated with endometriosis can be such a huge detriment to quality of life. And so it's something that I want to get ahead of because then I think it helps us to make some of those modifiable behavior changes that ultimately will improve symptoms, but it's so hard to get there when you're just, you just don't feel well. So my first question to you is at what point should period pain become a red flag for endometriosis? Yeah. Um, so at least through our integrative and Chinese medicine lens, period pain is not normal period. It's very common. Um, but there is, you know, a distinction to be made between common and normal. Um, that said, I think mild cramping that does not interfere with your day-to-day -day activities, probably not endo. Um, but if you're having cramping or other pain, doesn't necessarily have to be cramps, abdominal pain, um, that is keeping you from living your life, uh, that's a red flag in and of itself. And what I will tell patients who don't have a formal diagnosis of endo um, and just are coming in with dysmenorrhea, this really bad pain is let's well, do all of the anti-inflammatory work we can. If you're not feeling 50% better at that time, that is a huge red flag that we need to refer you to a qualified, you know, excision surgeon to, to look at what's going on. Yeah. Very good advice. I would love to go a little bit deeper into some of your favorite interventions here, both from an anti-inflammatory anti perspective and for pain management. Are there some, first, I always start with food. Are there some dietary strategies that you find yourself recommending again and again to your patients? Of course, food is my favorite. <laughs> food is my favorite medicine. Um, so, I mean, the first is just eating regularly that might sound silly but i find that especially with you know my my patient population who is 99% female um most of them come into the clinic undernourished um they're just not eating enough and food is one of the best um tools in the toolbox to help combat inflammation or it might be adding to the fire depending on you know what's going in um but focusing on just eating is the first step. And then once we've got that down, focusing on eating nutrient dense, you know, I always say nutrient dense, naturally colorful foods um, is a good place to start. If we're doing that, then we're going to be getting in all of the um, critical antioxidants that are really going to help to put the fire out. Um, blood sugar, stabilizing blood sugar is always a big one. And it's, I think, we hear about it a lot with PCOS, but I don't think it's talked about mm -hmm. as much um, in the endo space, which is unfortunate. Hopefully that um, will start to change because we have some research actually supporting that dysregulated blood sugar, high insulin levels can really mess with immune function and specifically with endo and inflammation. Um, so, you know, quit skipping breakfast, <laughs> eat, eat, eat three meals a day if you can. Um, make them naturally colorful and it would be a good starting place at least. 
Um, I also like to tell folks to eat strategically, you know, with the timing of your cycle. So depending on where you are in your cycle, when you're in the menstrual phase, eating really um, what we call in Chinese medicine, blood building foods, really nutrient dense foods, um, dark leafy greens, good quality grass fed meat um, will be helpful. In the follicular phase, you'll want to eat foods that are nourishing of blood and yin, um, which, you know, translates to yummy like eggs and um, good quality, really just produce the best produce, good quality, colorful produce is going to be where it's at. And then lots of good quality protein and fat. Um, and then the luteal phase, I think for um, managing endo symptoms and pain, that's where we really have to be careful um, because that's where we start to see this inflammation in the week or so leading up to periods, you know, that's where we hear about folks starting to really become symptomatic a lot of the time. So avoiding um, alcohol, excess sugar, refined foods during that time will definitely help to keep the inflammation at bay and hopefully keep your pain at bay. I love learning about traditional Chinese medicine and nutrition and the different classes of foods to help you with different body systems. I think that's so fascinating. And I love how you linked, like you said, I think we're all pretty familiar with blood sugar balance for PCOS, but this is so important in endometriosis too. And I was actually reading a paper recently and it was talking about, um, about hyperinsulinemia. So having elevated levels of insulin and how insulin can upregulate the enzyme called aromatase, which irreversibly converts testosterone to estrogen, right? And then we have all this estrogen available to feed the growth of those endometriomas. And so I am really looking at, at measuring a fasting insulin in patients with endometriosis, because I think that's such a, an important place to intervene, not only to help with endo symptoms, but also to prevent other chronic diseases later down the road, cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's so important that you just made that connection that this really extends again, outside of what we would consider like a reproductive system. Absolutely. And just on the topic quickly, I want to make sure that I also mention with nutrition, um, we have a lot of interesting research around endometriomas and vitamin D and how folks who are low in vitamin D are more likely to grow these large endometriomas. Um, so getting vitamin D in, you know, fish, liver, sardines, if, if you can find a patient who will actually eat those things, otherwise testing and supplementing um, is important. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great clinical pearl. Everybody, including me here in the Seattle area, needs to go get our vitamin D yeah. tested. That's an important takeaway. From a, an acupuncture or a traditional Chinese medicine standpoint, is there is there anything else we can do for pain management? Can acupuncture uh, help with pain management? Yes, absolutely. Acupuncture is one of my favorite tools right up there with nutrition. Um, so acupuncture is... Chinese medicine is a beautifully integrative system um, consisting of five branches. So we've got acupuncture, nutrition, herbs, movement, and body work. And I find the using these as a truly collaborative, integrative um, medicine is really wonderful, specifically for period pain. Um, so acupuncture is really magic for helping to bring yummy, good, well-oxygenated blood flow to the pelvis, which is an issue for people with endo. We know that they, they tend to be, the pelvis tends to be kind of hypoxic, right? There's just not enough good quality blood there. Um, so acupuncture can help to promote blood flow, can help to reduce inflammation, 
Um, it can even help to balance hormones by strengthening that communication line between the brain and the ovaries, which is really important. Um, and then of course the nutrition piece of the, the five branches we already talked about. Um, herbs are another wonderful tool that we use often um, to help mitigate pain. Um, which herbs for the most part, you know, it'll be dependent on your unique symptoms, but there are a few that uh, are pretty well known like turmeric and ginger and um, red peony root. These things are pretty easily accessible and notoriously helpful for reducing pain associated. And then gentle movement in Chinese medicine, it's Qigong, but I think, you know, any kind of slow movement, there's some great um, exercises that one of my pelvic PT colleagues shared with me that I think are just so helpful to bring uh, blood flow to the pelvis. Um, so movement, and then of course, body work, if you can get it just to help calm the nervous system and, and promote blood flow. Well, it's really encouraging to hear that there are so many things that we can do, especially when we're at our wits end. We feel like I've talked to my doc about this a thousand times and I just haven't, there's no traction here. Well, look at all of these areas that we can explore. I think that's why these conversations like you and I are having right now are so important because I, I, I'm, I'm in this work every day and I'm learning from you things that I haven't thought about, I haven't explored. And so I feel really confident that's true for others. Like what, what a beautiful message of hope. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. On that topic, you know, you mentioned as part of your story that you were really pleading with your healthcare team to give you some answers or investigation for years. And then ultimately had your doc come to you and say, this may be affecting your fertility. So for those who maybe are on this endometriosis journey and, and they know that they would love to have a pregnancy at some point in the future. Do you have any advice about what we can do to, to protect our egg health for the future? Yes, absolutely. And honestly, I think definitely egg health, like, of course, we know that the chronic inflammation associated with endometriosis is not good for egg health. It can definitely mess with the quality. Um, but I would say it's important to look one step further at how the chronic inflammation and adhesions and lesions are potentially affecting the entire reproductive system, right? Um, and that's where early intervention and getting a good team on board um, is gonna be helpful to get a early baseline of what your tubes are looking like. How are your ovaries? Is there any anything going on with the uterus? Any adenomyosis, right? Getting um, a full picture first, I think is an important step for understanding your body and knowing what fertility path is going to be best for you. Um, and then once you do that, I think stepping back and really looking at your options, um, considering, you know, what is going to align with your values. So for a lot of folks, I do recommend excision surgery. The question of when is a big question for fertility. Um, because ideally we're not having you go in for four or five surgeries, right? So that would be a conversation to have with your qualified um, excision surgeon about when to time that to help reduce inflammation and optimize the odds of um, you know, healthy eggs and implantation. Um, and then just really implementing all of the things we've talked about here. It's never too early. If you know you have endo or suspect that you have endo, now is the time, right? So be your own advocate, build a team, start looking at the nutrition piece, the lifestyle piece. Um, where can you 
clean up, um, you know, any potential environmental toxins or triggers that might be messing with your immune system. Um, and really just, I think, ultimately getting to know your own body um, and then assembling that team. Yeah. This question just occurred to me as you were talking about, well, maybe someone who is working through their endometriosis and they they're not ready to have a baby now, but they think they may want a pregnancy in the future. Maybe they're thinking about egg freezing. And is your advice the same? Like have that conversation early on so that you have a, a plan and you know how to time egg freezing with maybe some other procedures that you're having. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think it's important regardless to seek early intervention and to understand what your potential barriers might be early on so that you can start strategizing. Yeah. Very sound advice. And it also makes me, I'm just sitting here reflecting when I was in my twenties, did my primary care doc at my, at my annual visit ever ask me like, do you have menstrual cramping? And I don't know that anyone ever asked me that I ask everyone, but wow, wouldn't that be a game changer if that was built into just our wellness exams when we were young? Absolutely. Yep. And then if the answer was yes, it would be even more amazing if they knew what to do with that information beyond just recommending ibuprofen. Yep. Okay. Well, that's why we are doing, that's why we do the work that we do. I wanted to just make sure that I had time to chat with you about one more topic before we part ways, because I think it kind of ties in multiple areas that we've talked about today and it's libido Mm. and pain with intercourse, because this is something we hear from our, our patients with endometriosis, right there. It's tender. It maybe isn't super comfy. Their drive, their sex drive suffers. And you mentioned in a, in a recent post that you did on social media that I read that we can really use libido as a clue into what's going on for someone, maybe hormonally, maybe what's going on for them comfort wise. What are some patterns that you see in your patients who have a low libido, and maybe they're also trying to conceive. I think about this all the time for my patients who are like using ovulation predictor kits and their, their whole sex life is timed by this little piece of paper. So what are some patterns you're seeing? Well, I mean, I think we can look at it from a couple of ways. Of course, I want to look at um, hormonal patterns. What are their sex hormones doing? Are they dealing with hypothyroidism? Is there anything going on with, um, adrenal health that might be influencing libido on that side of things, right? The, the things that we might need to tinker with a little bit. Um, and then as you mentioned, I think the other piece with endo is sometimes sex hurts and that is not motivating, right? To have sex, to make a baby. Um, and so I think if that is the case, identifying that and then working with a pelvic floor physical therapist actually yes. can be amazing. Um, and there are some really wonderful tools out there now. And if you know about the O-Net. <laughs> that, I'm a big uh, fan. Yes. Yeah, patients really love it for pain. Um, so I think the mental emotional component of sex and potentially trauma that comes with just repeat pain after so many years of you know experiencing it with intercourse um, is, is a a mental, emotional burden or hurdle for people, um, to get through. Yeah. In this scenario, I have at times recommended that my patients see a family and marriage counselor or a sex therapist just to help work through, because even the strongest couples, if, if sex is painful, that can really stir up a whole variety of other emotional 
spiritual questions. And so sometimes I think it's so nice to have that resource on board. Absolutely. Yes. We have a, we have a list of therapists that we refer to. (laughs) Absolutely. No shame in that mental health game. So I think that's an appropriate referral at times related. Let's just take a second and talk lube because sometimes when things are tender, a a great lubricant can make a big difference. You mentioned O-Nut, which is a great device too. Um, If someone is looking for a safe lubricant, a fertility friendly lubricant, what should we be looking for? Do you have some advice for us? Yeah, I mean, I would like to find something that is as natural as possible. So something that's paraben-free would be, you know, ideal. Um, One thing that I see a lot in clinic is people using coconut oil, (laughs) which outside of your fertile window is great. Use whatever you want. But during your fertile window, ideally minimizing, um, you know, exposure to anything that is not naturally occurring in the body. So if we're needing to use a lube, we obviously want to find something that is sperm protective um, because that is you know, what we essentially need that cervical fluid for. Um, so sperm protective and then ideally, you know, paraben free and just free of toxins as, as much as we can. I really actually like um, baby dance. Have you heard of baby dance? Mm-hmm. Baby dance, good, clean love is another brand that I recommend all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've got options and Merit, I wanted to thank you so much for being on the show today, sharing of your own story, sharing all of these really relevant and approachable and actionable insights. For all of our listeners who are tuning in, I think that this has given so many ideas for what next steps might be, how we collaborate and build that care team to really meet a variety of our needs. I think we could do a million follow-up episodes to keep diving into this conversation. And as as research emerges on all of these etiologies of endometriosis and all of these treatment approaches, I think we'll continue to have so much to talk about. So I just really wanted to honor all you've shared today and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a privilege. To all of our listeners, it's always an honor that you choose to spend time with us. To my amazing friend and producer, Paola Martini, thank you for bringing the show to life. We can't wait to see you again next time. Thanks everyone. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.